What is the three-legged stool concerning the evidence for the resurrection? Find out on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while entering the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host for the time we have together, yours truly, Brian Chilton. And we thank you for joining us on today's edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. I want to remind you uh, that uh, the Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and uh, we do encourage you to go to the website at bellatorchristie.com and and uh, subscribe if you haven't done so already. We also encourage you to uh, leave a positive review on the app on which you are listening to this podcast. Uh, we are available on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, if you'll go and leave a uh, positive comment and positive rating, uh, that helps uh, the podcast to be seen in more areas and uh, elevates the, uh, the status of the podcast so that it's more readily accessible uh, during searches. So if you would just uh, do that, we would greatly, I'd greatly appreciate it. And I know that uh, our guests uh, who come on the podcast uh, would as well. Today I want to uh, mention a uh, a topic that uh, was brought up recently on uh, Dr. William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith podcast. Uh, he was talking about some areas of disagreements that he has with uh, N.T. Wright on the area of the atonement. And I'm not going to get into the issues of the atonement on this podcast, but it was actually a... Um, Another, it was another aspect of the podcast that he mentioned that I thought was worth sharing. Uh, it was something that I haven't, something on which I haven't focused much attention, but something that is very important uh, as I do consider myself more of a historical apologist. Uh, I do focus more on the historical aspects of, of apologetics than, uh, than other areas. And so uh, William Lane Craig mentions on the podcast. Uh, well, let me just let's let's just go to the podcast uh, and and hear his take on it, and we'll go back and explain th- what he calls a three-legged stool. So let's go to the Reasonable Faith podcast. Resurrection of the Son of God. Absolutely. Uh, are there areas on the resurrection that you've interacted with him on? Yes, yes. We both were in one of the Greer Herd forums at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary several years ago where I offered a response to his argument in the resurrection of the Son of God. And what I suggested is that N.T. Wright's book is the fullest development of that third leg it's here of the talking about three-legged three stool that is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The first leg is the evidence for the empty tomb. The second is the evidence for the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. The third is the very origin of the 
disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. And in Wright's book, he presents the fullest argument for the historicity of the disciples suddenly and sincerely coming to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary. Okay, so we'll we'll leave it there. Um, so so what he's going to do in the podcast? If you haven't listened to it, I suggest you go uh, listen to the pod, his podcast. It's called NT Wright Responds to uh, Doctor Craig, and so it is uh, posted uh, this. Uh, so what, what was this past Monday? Uh, let's see, it was postmarked uh, May 6th, 2019. So uh, if you get a chance to go listen to it, it's a very interesting podcast, and I encourage you to do so. But uh, I want to talk about, as he mentions, this uh, three-legged stool in relation to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so he, he described the three-legged stool on the podcast, and I want to go in a little bit more detail on this three-legged stool, because I, I found this fascinating. Uh, in in some ways, I kind of wonder if there's not some additional stool, some additional uh, legs we could add to this. But I think this is a really good way, a really good start to uh, de- de- describing the evidence for the resurrection. And so, uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is this three-legged stool, at least uh, one, the empty tomb. Two, post-mortem, evidence for the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. That means after his death on the cross uh, that Jesus was seen alive. And then the third was the origin uh, or the beginning of the disciples' belief that Jesus had ra- ra- risen from the dead. And so I want to kind of go through and give a few comments on, on these. And, and, and for those who may not be... Um, very familiar in the world of apologetics. Maybe you're getting your start in apologetics, and maybe you're, or maybe you're a veteran apologetics, but just like to kind of, uh, uh, kind of group together, maybe think through some of these issues. Uh, this podcast is for you. So first of all, we want to look at some things that um, that could be added to uh, some reasons to believe in this three the three legs of the stool that William Lane Craig mentions. First of all, he mentions evidence for the empty tomb. Now, um, Gary Habermas has his minimal facts argument, and and he has six six parts to the minimal facts argument, but he actually has a seventh. It doesn't hold as much weight as some of the others do, but it still holds a pretty stout um, it's still pretty strong in its weight in concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And that concerns that seventh point is the, evidence, is the evidence for the empty tomb. Now, it's not that the evidence isn't strong for the empty tomb. It's just that 75% of scholars agree, historians from both conservative, non-conservative, Christian, non-Christian uh, walks alike, that the tomb was found empty on the first Sunday. Now, here's the problem. Um, the, the problem comes about uh, due to how do you describe it, okay? So the problem with the empty tomb, as far as skeptical scholars go, is not so much a problem with um, the tomb being empty. It's the ramifications of a literal bodily resurrection. That's where the problem comes. But so what are some of the reasons to believe that the tomb was found empty on that first Easter Sunday? Well, first of all, you have the Jerusalem factor, the message of the resurrection was start, started in Jerusalem, and this is extremely important. This is extremely important for one reason. 
everyone, this is, is the very same location, the very same location where Jesus was crucified. Now, is if you're going to tell a tale, it, it's it's difficult to do so. It, it may be easier to do so in an area where the, the event doesn't happen, but if you're in the event where it does happen, it's a whole lot more difficult in getting uh, that lie to pass, especially if it's of a grandiose fashion. For instance, I, I spoke at a pastor's conference down in Yakin County where my previous church was located, and, and, and I used this illustration. I told him, I said, you know, I could go to a different state, a different location in the United States, or a different part of the world, and claim that whenever I was pastor of the church where I was, you know, it was at Huntsville Baptist, I could say, that this was a mega church, that we had 20,000 people there. We, you know, we made Joel Osteen's church look small. We made Lakewood look small. And they may probably have more than 20,000 there, but but I could, I could say that. And in some parts of the world, they might believe it if they didn't know where Huntsville was. But I told them, you know, in, in the pastor's conference, I said, you guys are here in the county where the church is. And I said, "Could you? would you believe it if I said that uh, the church was running 20,000 people? And then they smiled and said, no, we wouldn't believe that because the church had about 100 people in it. It wasn't a large mega church. Great church, great people there, and, you know, uh, wonderful, wonderful folks there. Um, but but what I'm trying to say is, is it's a lot more difficult to, to pass along a lie whenever it's in the same area where the events are located. So it would be difficult for the, for the disciples to claim that the tomb was empty if the, if the tomb was actually occupied. Uh, the, fact that it, the fact that their message took root and they proclaimed that, there was, that Jesus was risen and the tomb was empty, I think shows a strong deal of evidence that the tomb was in fact empty on the first Easter Sunday. Secondly, you see that the that the message of the empty tomb is early. First Corinthians fifteen three through seven is one of the most important creeds we have. Uh, early material in the in the First Corinthians that dates to uh, within at least no later than thirty five A.D and most likely dates back to within months of the resurrection of Jesus, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in that, in that, in that um, empty tomb, in that, excuse me, passage of Scripture, in that creed, it says that Jesus was, was crucified according to the Scriptures, buried according to the Scriptures, and risen from the dead according to the Scriptures. Okay, so we see that he was buried, but he was no longer buried once he was risen. Some of the sermon summaries in the book of Acts are very early as well. And there are several, there, there's one particularly, I think is Acts 15 or 18, I'm not exactly sure where it is right offhand, but one of them mentions very explicitly that Jesus was uh, buried. He was buried and then he arose again on the third day. So that is, the message of Jesus' resurrection was very, very early. And so it's difficult to make it up because all you'd have to do is, if you're saying that the tomb is empty, go check out the tomb. Okay, and that brings us to the third point: Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea would have been a very popular man, being part of the Sanhedrin. Everyone would have known who he was. And in in while Jerusalem was a large city, it wasn't large enough where someone couldn't find where the tomb of Joseph Joseph of Arimathea was located. 
you know, uh, you know, because because people would know this would be a rich man's tomb, and all people would have to do was go and and request to see inside the tomb, and uh, to say that we've heard. I mean, if especially if you're if you're in the Sanhedrin or if you're within the Romans, basically say to Joseph of Arimathea, we want to look in this tomb and see if it's empty, and if they found it occupied, all they had to do is open it up and show the populace that it was occupied. Uh, and the resurrection message would have died. Okay, but that didn't happen. In fact, what you see is actually a fourth bit of evidence is that the the early Sanhedrin was was uh, was claiming that the disciples stole the body. So if they're claiming that the disciples stole the body very early on, then that must mean the tomb was empty. Plus, you also have the Nazareth decree which is dated to no later than 45 AD, was posted in Galilee saying that if anyone has messed with another person's tomb, they will be punished to the full extent of the law, even including death. So do not mess with uh, the with a person's tombs. Now, why do you think that came about in Galilee and it's believed to have been around Nazareth? Well, Jesus was from Nazareth and was from Galilee, and so I don't think it's any mistake that you find that decree in this area uh, that comes from the Caesar of the time. So uh, <laughs> I think I think the case for the empty tomb is quite strong, to be honest. Secondly, we see the evidence for the post-mortem appearances. This is the evidence that for people seeing Jesus alive after his death on the cross. And there are many things we could say here. Uh, but just to keep it short and sweet, first of all, you see the women. The women were the first witnesses of, of the uh, of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. They saw Jesus alive first. The early church told individuals about this story. They, they let individuals know that Mary Magdalene don't know what happened in her past. She was possessed by one time seven demons. And so... You're going to basically have a woman who had been at one time possessed, freed from that possession, but you're essentially going to have her being your key witness into the events. You wouldn't make that up if you're making up a story. You just wouldn't do that. In fact, you would. Uh, that would be the last thing you'd do. They'd only tell that if it were, in fact, the truth. Secondly, group hallucinations are not possible. And this doesn't come from my personal opinion. This comes from... Uh, the, the psychological magazines it comes from psychology itself psychologists itself group hallucinations are not possible now hallucination we have to understand something a hallucination is something that happens internally it's individualized now people can be deluded people can be uh, tricked by an illusion an illusionist an illusionist or something like that so the people can have a group illusion but people cannot have a group hallucination, okay? So the reality is, is that Jesus could not have been seen by multiple people at one time and it be part of a group hallucination, okay? It could not have been possible. So, and we see added to that that multiple people saw Jesus alive. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says that over 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time, there are reasons to believe that they're um, that they only counted men 
in that, uh, in fact, they did only count men in the, in the First Corinthians 15 Creed. So they didn't mention Mary Magdalene. They didn't mention any of the women. So if they're counting only men, quite possibly, you could have over a thousand witnesses who witnessed Jesus alive from the dead in the First Corinthians 15 Creed. Okay, see, so, so here's the thing. Multiple people saw Jesus alive, and this didn't happen just one time. Matthew 28, during the Great Commission, that happens in Galilee. Many people falsely ascribe that to being the time when Jesus ascended into heaven, but he didn't, that's not, he didn't ascend into heaven from Galilee. They came back to Jerusalem for that, at the Mount of Olives. Okay, so he goes to Galilee, to his disciples in Galilee, Okay, he teaches, he gives the Great Commission. Multiple people see Jesus alive in Galilee. Okay, then he comes back to Jerusalem. Multiple people see him whenever he ascends into heaven on the Mount of Olives, which had been very visible. Many people could have seen him. Okay, so multiple people saw Jesus alive. That's why I think... I think that's part of the reason why so many people came to Christ, so many people came to faith early on because the disciples were preaching with boldness. They said they saw Jesus. Well, many other people saw Jesus. In fact, Paul even says when quoting from this creed, most of the people who had seen Jesus alive were even alive at that time, even though some had passed. During the time he's giving this information to the church of Corinth. In addition, Jesus was seen over a 40-day period. So this wasn't just one appearance. This happened over and over and over for 40 days. Now see, I, 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 I follow the liturgical calendar. I have a, I have a uh, cross out in our yard, and I put different uh, cloths on the cross, representing the different color cl- uh, cloths representing the uh, stage of the church year. And, and if you see the, my cross, you'll notice that there is a white robe on it that I placed on, on Easter that still remains to this day. Why is that? Because Jesus was seen by multiple people over a 40-day period. Easter is not just a one-time event. People saw Jesus alive for 40 days. Over the course of 40 days, Luke even says in Luke chapter 1 that he did many infallible proofs. That's a legal term he uses to describe the fact that this was beyond dispute, that that people saw Jesus alive and knew that it was him. So Jesus was seen over a 40-day period. Again, you have the Jerusalem factor. Jesus was seen alive in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, uh, but he was seen alive in the very same place where he was crucified. Very fascinating. And then, of course, you have the early creeds. Mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. You also have the Philippians hymn. You have Colossians. You have multiple. You have the sermon summaries, which mentions seeing Jesus alive. the interesting thing is, is that the earliest Christology was the highest Christology, and you see that in these early creeds. So, empty tomb, post-mortem, post-mortem mortem appearances, those are two legs of the stool uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. And then for thirdly, you have the origins of the disciples' belief in the resurrection. What led them to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Were they looking for the resurrection? Many people will argue, well, they made up the resurrection story uh, because they they wanted to uh, show Jesus as being a superhero or something like that. But remember, these are Orthodox Jews. Okay, they are coming from a Jewish perspective, 
in Dr. Randall Price's class, I, I learned uh, through Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book on the Messiah, on Jesus, or Yeshua, that is, uh, that, that John chapter 1 is not as immersed in Greek philosophy as we think it is. The Lagos principle may not has, have been even influenced as much by uh, 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 Philo and, and of Alexandria, and that type of theology, because John would not have run in the same circles that Philo did in Alexandria. But there is a, a steeply Jewish understanding of the angel, angel of the Lord, the Mimra, the word of the Lord, Aramaic Mimra for, for the Greek Lagos, which would understand the Messiah to be, or the this individual to be, like the angel of the Lord, uh, this, this being who was divine but separate from the Father, a revealer of covenants. And I need to do a podcast on this. I don't think I've done one on the Memrah, but that is something I need to do. And this angel of the Lord is called in Jewish uh, literature as the Metatron. I think that's a cool name. Makes me think of uh, the uh, Transformer Megatron. You know, it's it's a really cool name. But anyhow, um, so so we see this memoir. We see that this is steeply immersed in Jewish theology. So the reality is, is they were not expecting. They were not anticipating a resurrection to take place in their time. They were anticipating a future resurrection, and this is clearly seen, I believe, in John chapter eleven. Where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you remember what Martha said? He says, "Martha, do you believe that I am the Son of God?" And she says, "Or do you, you know? Do you I believe I have the power to raise Lazarus from the dead?" And she says, "Yes, I believe in the resurrection, and that in the end he will be raised from the dead." She has her theology right. She she believes in the final resurrection, as did all Pharisees and even Essenes. It was the crazy. Sadducees and and the Samaritans who who uh, didn't really get much into the uh, resurrection theology. The Sadducees outright denied it, but the Pharisees, of which Jesus was one, Jesus was most closely affiliated with the Pharisees. He didn't hate the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus was a Pharisee. He he was most likely of the branch of Judaism. Well, yeah, he was. Not most likely, he was the branch of Judaism that of known as the Pharisees. Now we use Pharisee to represent a legalistic person. Not all the Pharisees were. Some were. Okay, and, and part of the problem what Jesus is standing against is not so much just the. Uh, he's not standing against the law. Many people think that Jesus is overriding the law. Jesus, is many times, is overriding the Mishnah or the some of the interpretations of the other rabbis. The the oral law that is. Anyhow, the the point is is that they were not anticipating an immediate resurrection. They were anticipating a resurrection to take place at the end of time. Secondly, they were not influenced by Greco-Roman cults. Now, done some research on this, and I don't have it in front of me right now, and this will be another great podcast to record, but you clearly see that the the, the so-called, even Bart Ehrman goes this route and, and some others, Larry Hurtado, I believe, has written a book on this, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but showing the fact that, that the disciples were not influenced by Greco-Roman beliefs as far as it pertains to cults. Yeah, there was an influence of Hellenism, some, to some degree, but most Jews 
were pretty stagnant in their beliefs or, or pretty steadfast in their beliefs and wholeheartedly opposed anything having to do with idol worship. Okay, Most Orthodox Jews were of that persuasion, were that way. So this idea of the resurrection of Jesus they did not come from any type of Roman cult or Greek cult. It, it, most of the theology, what you find, in fact, all the theology I think you find, even the Logos, is deeply rooted in Jewish theology. Okay, So if they're that in tune with Jewish theology, what makes us think that this resurrection idea would have come from some type of cult or some type of uh, mythology? didn't happen. Ultimately, the origin of the disciples' belief was in a literal bodily resurrection. Okay, They were not led to believe so by any other type of philosophy or any other type of worldview. They, in fact, in fact, were anticipating a final resurrection. Did they believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. Did they believe in an afterlife? You bet. We even see evidence in the New Testament where where some of the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost walking on the water. Well, they thought he was a ghost whenever they saw him. So they believed in the afterlife. They believed in this spiritual existence beyond the grave. But Jesus did something that they did not anticipate, and that was to literally rise from the dead on the third day. So these three legs are very strong, in my, in my opinion, that the tomb was found empty, there were post-mortem appearances, and that the, the origins of the disciples' belief in the resurrection did not stem from some philosophy. They were not anticipating the resurrection to take place. In fact, they believed in the resurrection because Jesus himself had risen from the dead. Now, I think there are probably some more legs that we could add to this stool, but I think these three legs are very stout. And so my appreciation to Dr. William Lane Craig for the work he does. Don't always agree with him on everything, but I appreciate the work he does and uh, and, and all those others out there making a difference. Greg Kokel, uh, Frank Turek, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, many, many others out there making a big difference in the world of, if, of theology and apologetics. And, of course, I've got to mention my professor. Uh, that is Gary Habermas, Randall Price, Leo Purser, many, many others we can mention there. Uh, Dave Baggett, many others we can mention there, doing a wonderful job defending the truth and proclaiming the truth of Christ. And I just hope that uh, on this podcast I can add just a little bit to the wealth of uh, information that's out there. And so I appreciate you listening in. You've been listening to the Bellator Christian Podcast. This is Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.